I once had a pastor friend to tell me uh, there is no theology of water in the New Testament. Well, I beg to differ. There is. And today, uh, I've entitled my sermon, Save Through Water. And water is mentioned uh, in the text that I'm preaching from in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Water was employed at the baptism, of course, of our Lord. And we find water throughout the scriptures. And uh, it is used in both symbolic ways and it is used in some cases to execute God's righteous judgment. Water, it, it is truly the most important liquid, I suppose, that we have. I'm told that you can live a month or more without eating, maybe two months. I don't know. Some of us might live four or five. <laughs> Get along just fine. But I am told that uh, in, in terms of water that we're talking three or four days, maybe a week at most. I don't know. Uh, but it is much, much shorter. We need water. I found this out working as a college student. I worked for the Forest Service in the summer. And my job was to treat diseased trees. I had to cut them down. And a few, we, I worked with a partner. And we'd have to hike four or five hours sometimes to a tree that was located on a, tropic, uh, a tope sheet, a topographical map. And then work maybe for two or three hours around the tree. And sometimes we could do two a day and sometimes we could do four. But we worked about between 12 and 18 hours. Now, you can't carry much water when you're carrying a 45-pound saw and all kinds of other things. And we would sometimes run out of water in the middle of the summer. And it was great to get to a place where you could have water. And uh, I used to think there's nothing like this experience of drinking water when you are really, really, really thirsty. On the other hand, water uh, can be quite destructive, can it not? Uh, I recall, because it happened in my home state, uh, that water can be very destructive. On February the 26th in 1972, uh, uh, literally to this very day almost, a a coal company dam uh, broke in uh, Buffalo Creek, West Virginia. It was halfway down the mountain, and it broke. And 132 million gallons of water rushed down uh, to some 12 to 15 settlements along the side, 30 feet high, uh, killing an amazing number of people. Over 1,000 people were injured, uh, nearly 150 lost their lives, and of the 5,000 people in that valley, 4,000 lost their homes. So water can be a great blessing. It can also, of course, be an instrument of destruction. And when we come to this text in 1 Peter 3.18, we see both an allusion to the destructive nature of water, but also to its employment as a holy sign to represent God's new covenant of his promise to us, which he seals to us in Christ Jesus. Today, I want you to see that we can rest upon God's promises, which are conveyed to us 
or promised to us or signed to us in our baptism. And we can not only rest upon that promise because of his holy sign, but we can claim that sign uh, for us and for our children that he might indeed work out his purposes in our lives and in our offspring. I did not go searching, by the way, for this text today because I knew that Jason and Kelly would be having Leah baptized today. This happens to be the lectionary reading on the church calendar. And so the text chose me, and I think it is quite providential. I'm happy to preach on the subject which I'm preaching. And the first thing I want you to see is that baptism, your baptism, puts a difference between you and the world. That's what our Westminster standards say. That your baptism, your baptism puts a difference between you and the world. Now let me elaborate on this uh, because it is a very important matter. Here, this matter of baptism is linked quite clearly to some very difficult verses in the Bible, but it is finally linked to Noah's flood. Just look at the text for a moment, if you will. It is not an easy text. It is one of the hardest texts in all the Bible, because when you read through 1 Peter, you also get to chapter 4, verse 6, where there is, is a preaching to the dead, and it's to be linked to this as well. But notice the passage of Scripture that was read to you. Let me start then in verse 18 and catch up. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now, no matter what I say here today, understand that this is framed in the work that it is through God's Holy Spirit that he brings you to himself. But he brings you to himself in certain ways and not just in any way. This is in the context of Christian suffering. And God uh, uh, is concerned about all of his children today. The, the church is suffering today in many lands. I hope you appreciate that. And I've encouraged people, I think it is Newsweek, to pick up Newsweek and read the article by Hershey Ali of how many Christians are being persecuted and killed on a daily basis around the world. It's an important matter, and this matter of baptism becomes very important and crucial at this time in these people's lives. But notice, here in this case, the whole question is framed this way, for Christ died for our sins once for all. Same thing you find in Hebrews. The righteous for the unrighteous. And what does his death and eventually his resurrection do? It brings us to God. This is God's sovereign purposes worked out in his son. He brings you to himself. If you find yourself sitting here today and participating in this worship, and I were to ask you the question, what is your hope and why are you here? You might simply say, because Christ's death and resurrection have, has brought me into his kingdom. And I am here because of his action. And it is true, salvation is always God's doing. But on the other hand, notice how it works itself out from our perspective. He was put to death in the body 
the word death here means that he suffered unto death. He suffered unto death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. This doesn't mean that he simply resurrected through his spirit, but it means the, the flesh represents the old world, the world when the body is subject to death and the spirit is that he is now raised from the dead and he is a spiritual man or being as to his humanity. But notice what he says, but made alive by the spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, why does the apostle link baptism with the water in the time of Noah? First of all, maybe we should understand just a bit what verse 19 means. Uh, commentators have come up with probably three pretty good possibilities, but I don't think you can be dogmatic as to interpretation here. You could say that this is referring to preaching uh, or proclaiming uh, the word to those imprisoned spirits could be that Christ was preaching through Noah, energizing him to that generation. That's probably not the case because this is talking about something that happens after the resurrection. What was it then? Did Christ, after he was raised from the dead in glory and power, appear to the netherworld and preach to Noah's generation? Maybe. I prefer another interpretation that this is linked with Genesis chapter 6. And it's linked with when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they had an offspring and they produced giants in the earth or Nephilim. Maybe those are great kings of great wickedness who finally in Noah's day led the people down the road and away. And it seems to me the best interpretation is that Jesus Christ appeared, if you will, to those who were being reserved for judgment and proclaimed his triumph over all principalities and powers. Nonetheless, regardless of the interpretation, it is linked with the flood at Noah. What did Noah's flood do? Well, it was a means of judgment upon that wicked and perverse generation. It was a means of judgment. But at the same time, it was a means of salvation through the water. Noah and his household were the survivors. They were saved. And so water here not only is a means of God's judgment, but it is a means of God's blessing. Now, it's interesting that this is linked to baptism. And let me say, I think that this means clearly what the Westminster Confession says, that our baptism puts a difference between us and the world. Water is almost like a barrier that you cannot break through. It distinguishes those who are identified with Jesus Christ and for those who do not have it. They do not have that identification. Our baptism almost puts a barrier between us and the world. Why? Because it is linked to the resurrection, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a new way, a new world, new hope, new promise. We live in the kingdom of God. And this water is that symbol of that. Now, what you may think of all of the strange language here, and it is strange, and almost every commentator talks about it's a very difficult passage. 
But notice, Noah and his household were saved through water, even though for the unbeliever, it was a mode of destruction. Now, let me say about baptism, and I have to, to, uh, to negotiate here a very careful path. I have to negotiate between the old ancient mythological whirlpool and the rock, Pribdus and Scylla. And the ships, when they passed through those waters, had to make sure that they were not drawn to the left or the right. Or they could be misunderstood. Well, they would lose their life. But if I don't negotiate the ship properly, I will be misunderstood. Let me say what baptism is not. It is not an act or a rite that works ex oper operato. You've heard that phrase many times, haven't you? <laughs> well, that is a phrase that means that baptism itself, by the very work, saves you. That's not, I believe, the teaching of the Scripture at all, though you will find many highly sacramental churches that take that view. What is baptism then? Baptism is important because of what it signs and what it promises. Now remember, Christ alone can save. It is through his death and his resurrection. But there is an appointed holy sign and pledge from God that connects us with that. You know, I've often sat in services and maybe uh, when I was a child and the minister would give an altar call and people would come down and in the church that I'm thinking of, no one could really be saved unless they came to the altar down here. Uh, it didn't give anybody any confidence you were saved unless you were come down and bow down and confess your sins and receive the Lord. And then I've been in services where the preacher, if, if he can't get someone to come down to the altar, he wants them to raise their hand that they'll accept Christ where they are. Some kind of sign. Well, now, all of these are good and well. I have no quarrel whatsoever, believe me, whatsoever with any of these kinds of ways. One of my favorite people of all time, Billy Graham, was certainly uh, used these techniques in the altar call and the raising of the hand. But there is one way that God has ordained that you can signed, be signed and connected with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it is a sign of assurance for you and it's a sign that you can claim God's promise and that is baptism. Do you realize how much baptism is in the New Testament? It is all over the place. Our Lord was baptized. If you read through 1 Peter, you're going to meet this baptism uh, uh, phrase over and over and over. It's a very important matter. When I give an invitation to come to the Lord's table, you will often hear me say, in fact, I think every time you will hear me say, if you have received Christian baptism. You see, baptism is that sign that we've accepted Christ. And it's not just an arbitrary sign. It's not just an optional sign. It is God's ordained sign that we are to be obedient to and to receive. Very important matter. It is a sacramental sign. When Martin Luther one time was asked, what is the essence of the Christian life? He simply said, to remember your baptism. And what does baptism symbolize? That we have died with Christ and we have been raised from the dead. And to bear that sign is to give that testimony. 
And there is a sacramental union between that, that God sees it too and honors his promise and pledge to us in his son, Jesus Christ. What validity does baptism have? Because it points us to Christ and his death and his resurrection. It seals God's promises to us in his son, Jesus Christ, with our yea and amen. Now, let me go on to say that when we live up to our baptism, it enables us to have a good conscience toward God. In one sense, we live out our lives under a holy sign as Christians. We live out our lives. As I look around this congregation and I see you and your faces, I know that almost all of you live out under a holy sign appointed by God. You've received baptism. But that also carries with it an obligation to live up to it. That phrase is not mine. I heard that in a country preacher's sermon, to live up to your privileges, to live up to your baptism. What does it mean? Well, it's a holy sign. And it carries with it an obligation that we might live what we've been signed by. We have a heritage in our baptism in a real sense. It says that I have received Christ and I have pledged myself to live for him. And what happens when I falter and fail to remember that sign and to live up to it? It's displeasing to the Lord and my conscience cannot be good and clear. But when we live up to it, we do so with a clear conscience. It's a wonderful thing to know the peace of God and that you're walking with him and walking in the spirit. He goes on to say that baptism itself does not cleanse you in the sense of cleansing you from your sins. He says, not by putting off the filth of the flesh. By the way, he's referring to circumcision here. In the Old Testament, the sign of initiation was circumcision. In the New Testament, it is baptism. And both have something to do with putting off. And if you read Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, you'll see that circumcision is replaced by baptism in the New Testament. Therefore, it doesn't just wash away the stains on your soul, but it is the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to which it is linked symbolically that indeed cleanses your soul. Now, some of you may say, well, good and well, but uh, should you only baptize Believers, those who make a profession of faith in Christ. I'm not really preaching on that today, but let me say why the Reformed tradition baptizes the children of believing parents. I can give you three quick answers. First of all, baptism does replace circumcision, and in the Old Testament, circumcision included children. In the New Testament, that sign can be applied to both males and females. Moreover, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter got up to preach the first sermon after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and when the Holy Spirit fell, he was energized to preach, and he reiterates the same promise that God gave to Abraham. I will be a God to you and to your children, and are as many as are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. What a wonderful privilege it is to claim God's promise for myself in baptism and for my children. Wonderful privilege to claim that sign for my child 
and to train them as to what that means so that they might embrace Jesus Christ through faith and complete their baptism. There are examples in the New Testament. I, I, I know of the, of the Baptist tract that I read down south, which says, uh, what does the Bible say about the baptism of infants? And you open it up and it is blank. Well, that, that's, that's clever. In fact, I like it. But uh, the Bible does say a great deal. Remember that there are at least four examples in the New Testament where there are household baptisms. And it never excludes the youngest among them. And then in, in Ephesians, let me add one more bit of information, or I should say evidence that we should baptize our children. is because when Paul begins to address the Christian family, he addresses the father, he addresses the mother, and he addresses the children as being in the Lord. Have they come to personal faith in Christ? I don't know. But I do know that they have a sacramental union and promise to God, and we should treat them and teach them uh, our most holy faith, that they might embrace Jesus Christ through faith. It is a great privilege to be baptized, to live out our lives under this holy sign. In a land where there is plenty, in a land where there is relatively little persecution or cost for being a Christian, maybe baptism doesn't mean very much. But let me tell you, there is a young minister in Iran who received Christian baptism. And when the authorities found out, they have sentenced him to death and he now awakes execution by hanging. He could have gone on without the baptism and probably nothing would ever have happened. But they take the sign seriously. And my friend, we better take the sign seriously. There are people in Nigeria who are having their churches and homes burned down by Boku Haram. They are the baptized in the land. They take it seriously. We should take it seriously. There are Christians in North Korea, the most persecuted people on the face of the earth, and Christianity is totally outlawed, not a Muslim country. And if they find out you're baptized, that is the death sentence. There are 20-some countries in the Middle East that if you get baptized as a Muslim, that is considered a betrayal of the country. your culture, your heritage. Baptism costs people a great deal in many places. And it is a holy sign that they're happy to live out under and to claim it for them and for their children. My friend, the waters of baptism, though they make a distinction between us and the world, and some in other places get it. Let us live up to our baptism that people might see a distinction between us and the world. Amen.